Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I'm joined on the line by my first guest for the morning. Deborah Cheatham Freylon AO is a soprano, a composer, uh, and joins us to talk about a very special performance that's happening this Saturday, the 14th of October, at Hamer Hall, presented by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Uh, it's a performance of Eumorella, a war requiem for peace. Deborah, thank you for joining us on the program today. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Now, this is a significant composition for a number of reasons, um, including the fact that it is written in language, uh, composed by yourself, but not written in your own mob's language. No, actually, this was uh, an invitation by the late Uncle Ken Saunders to write a work that will commemorate the... Resistance War, known as the Umarella War, which took place in southwestern Victoria from about 1840 to 1863. So 23 years of a resistance war. And there might be people hearing about this for the first time. And if they are, I'm glad we're talking about it because it's something that we need to know, uh, our history, to understand what we might do with our future, let alone our present. But yes, it's the language of the Gunditjmara people and the translation of my text for the Requiem was done by senior language custodian Vicky Cousins and linguist Travis Ira back in 2018. And uh, yeah, it is is a huge work, some 85 minutes in the Gunditjmara language. Now, traditionally, a requiem is, um, I guess, musically, it's an act of remembrance. uh, It's uh, uh, an honouring of the souls of the dead. To write a piece like this, which is acknowledging uh, the, the violent conflict of the frontier wars, a conflict which is still not acknowledged, for example, by the our national kind of war institution, for example, this feels like it must have been for you a, a, a significant personal undertaking. Absolutely. And an undertaking on behalf of all Australians, really, because... This is a history, as I say, we need to understand, we need to engage with. And you're right, the Requiem Mass, and I'm sure I don't need to explain this, uh, but the Requiem Mass is uh, a ceremony designed to release those souls of um, the departed, to lay them to rest, to commemorate, as you say, to remember. And when I think about that particular resistance war and of course they took place all across Australia also known as frontier wars but of course for the for the indigenous people for the first nations people they weren't frontiers um they were it was homeland yeah and for the Gunditjmara people to be reduced from a population of well estimated at 9000 to just 77 people 77 members of the Gunditjmara clans who made their way 
to through this conflict and then only to be rounded up and to be put on Lake Condar mission. Uh, this deserves recognition to be understood so that we might uh, move forward, really, from these conflicts, armed with the information that this, is, this was the brutality of our beginnings. So how do we form a relationship beyond that? So to be performing it this weekend, this Saturday night, is something of a, an added significance to something that I thought, you know, couldn't possibly have any further significance here in Victoria. It it does take on a national significance on Saturday night. Now, that that resonance is unintended in some ways because when this work was programmed by the MSO to be performed this Saturday, we did not know that the date of the referendum would be held on the same day. That's right. That's exactly right. And when the uh, date for the referendum was finally announced, uh, I... I was stunned. I just thought, okay, okay. On the night when we 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 find out whether we're to have a voice or not, we have to be the voice in Hamer Hall of uh, the commemoration of, of this resistance war. Um, I don't know. Are there any coincidences? But yes, it was planned well in advance of the date of the referendum. But I'm I'm glad because. For myself, I also sing in the work. It it will be a very empowering space to be in, and I think uh, on Saturday night, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Deborah, in terms of your compositional approach to writing this work, talk to us about what kind of musical references and forms you were working with that you wanted to to bring to the the completed requiem. My process uh, with many works, especially those with text, but even those without, this one with a very large text that I'd written uh, had been translated into the Gunditjmara. The language very much drives my compositional process and the rhythmic choices particularly, but then also I spend a lot of time down on Gunditjmara country. As you mentioned at the top of this interview, uh, I'm a Yorta Yorta Yuan woman. It's not, not my country. So by invitation, I'd been uh, writing this work. I'd gone down onto Gunditjmara country and uh, trying to capture the resonance of that land, the vibration of that land, the environmental sounds of that land, a very rugged, uh, volcanic uh, uh landscape and also in terms of the the ocean that crashes in on that volcanic shore. It's a very particular uh, pitch frequency. So there are a number of elements there that come together to drive my choices in this work. For audiences listening to the work, there will be moments of, um, of, of sound worlds, if I can use that term, that will be very familiar, very tonal, and at other times, great clashes of sound to represent the, the pain and the anguish and the loss. But the arc of the performance brings us to a place that, that is familiar enough so that we can reach our own conclusions about what it means to us as Australians in the 21st century that these wars took place, that we don't know enough about them and that 
we have quite a journey to go on to learn about them so that we can, as a nation, understand one another better. Now, I know that traditionally the uh, Gunjamara people were water people. They were river and lake people. Uh, and during uh, their ongoing uh, campaign against European invaders, they then fought a guerrilla war from highland, from uh, the kind of rocky, stony outcrops that horses could not pursue mm. them into. It's That's exactly right. That's why the conflict lasted for 23 years. Uh, it had to be done on foot, much of it. Um, the the clans of the Gunditjmara, which spread from basically Colac right down to the border with South Australia and, and beyond, of course, that border is imposed. Uh, they're neighbours of the Bangala people down in what is known as South Australia now. Uh, the the conflict was was fought across that great sweep of land, you know, it's the size of a small European country. And the Umarala itself is is a river. And you find that across Australia that many of the conflicts and the atrocities were played out around, of course, water sources because water is life, yes. Uh, but also even before that, that conflict began, uh, there were the massacres known as the Convincing Grounds at Ars Tree down closer to Portland, right on the edge of the of the ocean there. And, uh, yeah... This, this was fighting back. And, uh, you know, today, it's such a story of resilience, Richard, actually. I think that's what, that's what I want to bring the audience to, that, that these people have survived that conflict. And more than that, they've thrived. And uh, as you would know, uh, the Budge Bim area, which is part of Gunditjmara lands, now enjoys World Heritage listing. It's listing, and it's an incredible place to visit so that you can see ancient aquaculture and the way that lives were lived there, um, the stone huts that, that the Gunditjmara lived in traditionally and, and their way of life that really was only interrupted 180 years ago. So, uh, you know, this really is a story of resilience. But in order to celebrate that, you need to know what the Gunditjmara people endured. Uh, and so that's what Umarala, a war requiem for peace, is. And it's also an opportunity for every member of the audience, every member of the orchestra, the, the, the massed choirs, the MSO Chorus, Consort of Melbourne, Dungala Children's Choir, my fellow soloists, Judd Arthur, as bass baritone this year, Linda Barkan, mezzo, soprano myself, under the guidance of uh, Maestro Benjamin Northey. You know, we're all in this space in Hamer Hall and we're allowed, through the power of music, to take this knowledge and process it, to allow music to almost transcend the analytical and convey the truth of what happened so that we might heal, really, because there's a wound right there in Australia that is yet to be healed. And uh, if we don't identify it, it will never be healed and it can only get worse. So in identifying these wounds that were opened up early in our shared history, we have a chance to heal. And I don't know any power, any force in the world that is greater than music to heal.
Umarella, a war requiem for peace is being performed this Saturday, the 14th of October at 7.30pm at Hamer Hall. You can go to www.mso.com.au to purchase tickets at a time when there is conflict raging around the globe and there is great tension in Australia over what you have rightfully called an unhealed wound, Deborah. It really feels that now more than ever a work like this is so important for us all. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. I've been talking to Deborah Cheatham Fralin AO about Umarella, a war requiem for peace. Deborah, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Thanks for your company. Thank you, Richard. Triple R. Time to introduce my next guest, uh, who is here to talk about a project called Glow Comic Trails. Emily Walsh is the artist in question. She's the artistic director of this particular project and uh, has been using glow-in-the-dark pigment in her fine arts practice since 2018. Emily, tell us about the appeal of glow-in-the-dark paint. It's an interesting medium to adapt to a fine art practice as opposed to, I don't know, um, spooky stickers uh, at Halloween or stars on the ceiling. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you bring up the stars on the ceiling uh, first thing, because if that's what people are thinking about when they hear Glow in the Dark, we're very happy with that, because if anything, we want it to be reminiscent of childhood and something a little bit magical. And also it has that um, reveal quality. It doesn't glow and then, oh, it starts glowing and it shows something else. It shows another world, another story. And that's what we wanted to incorporate into um, the narrative form of uh, comics. And what you've, uh, you and the other artists involved with this project have created then is an opportunity for, I guess, almost like a situationist derive around the city to, uh, to see the city anew while looking for different pages of comic art that are pasted up around the place and which are glow-in-the-dark. So if you find them during the day, they'll look one way. If you come back and look at them at night, they'll be transformed and transforming the way we see the city in the process. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. This is exactly what we're trying to um, encourage with this project. Uh, New uh, gaze on your own city. Myself, I'm pretty familiar. I've been living in Melbourne for over 10 years. And when I installed uh, the art trail and installed the pay stop, I've discovered new nooks and crannies in the city of Melbourne. Uh, And there's more to uh, street art and laneway culture than just Hosier Lane and ACDC Lane, like I've discovered some little treasure. I didn't know there was a street called Flinders Crescent, another one called Russell Place that's covered in paste up. Uh, so we hope that our project allow a participant to discover comics, but also generally um, engage uh, with the city we love in a new way. Yeah. Now, why comics as a medium? I mean, my, my regular monthly comic book reviewer, Bernard Callio, would be enthusing already about the subject. But why did you and the other artists involved want to use the medium of comic books to, for this particular work? Well, I believe that uh, the comic scene in Melbourne and in Australia is about to explode. Like, There's a lot happening at the moment. It's very exciting, and I think we're going to see way more in the future. So we wanted, myself and then we're learning on this project, to uh, allow more people to engage with the medium uh, of comic in a different way, through space, through walking, um, and just showcase the intersect of comic with street art, fine arts, um, and also 
um, allow a lot of our comic artists to get a different platform, a new experience. The art is printed in uh, risography, which is a beautiful kind of old school way of printing comics. Um, and we're offering the artists the opportunity to run workshops as well. So we really want to showcase, champion uh, the Melbourne comic scene and give them an opportunity to engage with a broader audience. Now, with the series of works that are pasted up around Melbourne, uh, are we talking a series of individual pages that will slowly make up a story or a series of individual panels? It's the later, yeah, individual panels. So in total, we commissioned six artists to develop a mini-comic uh, responding to the pitch Melbourne After Dark, because it's a nighttime activation. We're funded by the city of Melbourne. Uh, and those six artists develop uh, very individual, very personal stories uh, about Melbourne After Dark. And what we did is we taken their work, enlarged the panel, and then paste them up individually across the city. So it creates a trail. You have to walk to reconstitute uh, the stories panel after panel and looking for the Easter eggs, glow-in-the-dark element as well. Had any of the other artists worked with glow-in-the-dark before? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. This is coming from my own practice as, a, as an artist. I've been using um, glow-in-the-dark paint and glow-in-the-dark pigment for a variety of projects since 2018. Um, and it's quite unique. I don't think a lot of people use glow-in-the-dark in, in a fine art context. Um, so that was something I could bring into this project. And I've offered a uh, professional development for the six artists to learn to use, to mix their own pigments with paints and find a way to add the glow-in-the-dark layer um, and Easter egg element to their comic that suit best their work. Uh, so I believe it was a first for all of them, I'm pretty sure. And in terms of the, the six artists involved, does that mean that each has written a story so that you can, rather than just trying to find one story hidden across the city, there are six different stories to be uncovered? Absolutely. And we have quite a variety of uh, story. We have um, on top of my head, Amandine, for instance, develop a beautiful, who comes from illustration, develop a beautiful narrative and story about um, the wildlife, the native wildlife at nighttime in an urban context in the city of Melbourne. Whereas we have other artists such as Kale McHurst or Jess Wilson, who really come from a zine and comic, webcomic scene, who have a, a story that's way more narrative driven. Uh, and we're also very happy to have Ficaris, who's very established and come more from street art. Um, who's joined... part of the old Silent Army collective. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're really happy to have uh, Michael Ficaris on board with this project. And obviously with his expertise in, in street art, it was great. So to showcase in this one project people coming from different horizons and bringing in very different stories um, to this project. And it's a lovely bringing together of mediums as well because uh, often if people are reading comics they might be reading I don't know a, a manga book on the on a tram for example or reading uh, whether it's a uh, a comic on a uh, an 
old school printed comic at home or reading it on a tablet, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So bringing this together with the, the kind of choose your own adventure, wandering around the city, trying to slowly piece together the parts of the puzzle, to bring those two worlds together is a kind of delightful concept. Yeah, thank you. We hope so. Uh, uh, comics is more than just uh, a book as well. I mentioned webcomic. There's a big zine scene uh, and culture in, in Melbourne. And the intersect with street art uh, is historically, you know, it has historic roots as well. Uh, but yeah, we were very pleased to be able to blend in those different art forms. And the, as you mentioned, uh, situationist a dimension and kind of a scavenger hunt, really, throughout the city. Now, before we give the details of where people should go to start getting an idea of uh, the map and how they can find the different works, you mentioned that there's a a series of workshop components being run as well. So, yes, you ran uh, glow-in-the-dark paint workshops for the comic book artists involved, but then there's a series of other uh, workshops being run uh, from the, there's already a couple that have been run from the uh, the 11th of October, but now from the 17th of October onwards. So next week, uh, you've got a, uh, a series of workshops being run as well. Yeah, absolutely, and that was uh, really important for us. I'm working on this project with Laneway Learning, that which is a fantastic community organisation in the Nicholas Building in the city um, that uh, promotes lifelong learning and adult education, and I'm been working for them for a long time as, as an art teacher um, and there's definitely a uh, educational arm or tentacle to this project that is really really important because um, we really believe I believe personally that with running any form of exhibition art project it's fundamental to have an engagement and educational uh, tentacle <laughs> uh, to this, so it was key for us to be able to run workshop and to um, give the opportunity to the artists on this project, the comic book artists, to run a workshop if they wanted to, and we offered them uh, support as well to develop their their curriculum if they if they needed to, because um, we think it's really the best way for people to uh, meet the artist, engage with the work, have a try, become you know um, active participant as well, active creator by joining in the workshop and having a crack themselves at either glow in the dark. I'd be running another uh, glow in the dark workshop uh, a bit later in October, glow in the dark screen printing class, and all of our guest artists are offering fantastic fantastic workshop. I really urge everyone to go and have a look on the Laneway Learning website for the Glowcomy Trail to check that out. Yeah, so that's www.laneweylearning.com where you can find the link to the Glow Comic Trail Uh, and there are walking tours being offered, there are workshops covering uh, illustrating native wildlife for example with Amandine, one of the participating artists there's a zine making workshop which I believe you're running yourself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Uh, uh, an introduction to uh, Yonkoma Manga uh, and more. So, uh, and those uh, those workshops are very moderately priced. I think what fifteen to eighteen dollars mm-hmm. uh, plus a booking fee. Uh, so, you can, as we said, go to LaneWayLearning.com for find to find out information both about where the comics are and what those workshops are. Uh, and there's also free mini comics to be claimed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when, once you complete the trail and you reconstitute the story, one of the panel is also installed uh, within a venue with our uh, partner venues. So we have the classic um, uh, 
um, comic bookshop of the city of Melbourne, All Star Comics and Minotaur, uh, but also some bars, some art space such as Testing Ground that have one of the panel installed inside. So when you go in, complete the story, you can claim your free comic and you get like an A4 uh, printed version of the story you just reconstituted. And they are gorgeous. The risograph prints uh, with the beautiful fluoro pink and all those gorgeous bright color. They're really fantastic and it's an opportunity to start a collection uh, of, of uh, Melbourne comic artists. If you do not already have such a collection underway, definitely something to jump on. Uh, and there's also a little pamphlet that people can pick up, which again uh, has the map locations uh, printed in it as well. Where can people get hold of that? So people can pick up the, our little map and pamphlet at all of our partnered venues. So as I mentioned, the comic book store, Testing Ground, Laneway Learning as well, Sticky Institute, um, which is a zine institution in the Nicholas Building as well. So across all of our partnered venue, uh, you can pick up the map or by coming to one of our workshops or walking tour as well. So for more details, as I said, go to laneweylearning.com where you'll find a link specifically to the page for the Glow Comic Trails across Melbourne uh, Six different artists, six different stories about Melbourne after dark, six comics to be collected at the end of each story, with, of course, the delightful surprise Easter egg that uh, one panel in each story uh, on the street glows in the dark. So you get to go and discover that uh, at night, perhaps, once you have already mapped out the trail in your head or physically walking it. I guess, look, as a final question, Emily... Paste-ups are a temporary thing. Uh, will you and some of the other artists involved have to occasionally go back and repaste them because somebody else has kind of uh, posted over them, pasted over them or street-arted over them? Yeah, of course, that's the nature of uh, street art and that's absolutely okay. But I am maintaining the trails throughout the month of October when we're running the program. So I'm going weekly to replace uh, the paste-up if needed. And then after that... They would just run their life and stay as long or as little as they must. Uh, but throughout October, we'll make sure that the trails are updated and maintained. So that's the Glow Comic Trails as presented by Laneway Learning with support from the City of Melbourne. Uh, and you can wander around the CBD to discover six different stories. I've been chatting with the project's lead artist, Dr Emily Walsh. Emily, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Independently you. yours. Triple R 102.7 You may wish to check out something at Melbourne Fringe which is on now until the 22nd of October featuring literally hundreds and hundreds of acts there's over 400 shows in the Melbourne Fringe Festival this year choosing what to see can be a challenge which is why I like to interview people who've never done a Melbourne Fringe show before uh, because that way uh, you get to hear about something that you are not going to read about perhaps in The Age or in that other newspaper that we will not mention by name. Uh, I am joined in the studio by uh, Daniel Nodder. They're performing their Melbourne Fringe debut, a show called Only Bones, Daniel Nodder. Uh, 
Daniel, welcome to Triple R. Kia ora, good to be here. And this is a work of what? Dance and physical theatre that is part of an international and ongoing series yeah, of works. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, the Only Bones Project, it's basically a um, a challenge created by Tom Monkton, a circus performer. Um, he developed a, a system where he would challenge a solo artist to create a show uh, within one metre squared, one light, no text, no narrative no set, uh, and, yeah, one performer. So we had to uh, each create those, and I'm the 11th person uh, to give it a go, Tom being the first. Um, and, yeah, it's a physical theatre, dance, uh, making do with the minimal things we're allowed to use. <laughs> yeah. um, how did you get involved in this project? So I met Tom uh, actually at a, a Fringe Gala in the New Zealand Fringe Festival, um, and he liked uh, a previous show work that I did, and basically saw that and invited me to come create an Only Bones. Um, so was he kind of like a, a dramaturg, director? Yeah, kind of outside eye uh, a dramaturg, and came in, and we basically worked together over a few weeks and, and crea- created and crafted uh, this version. Yeah. yeah <laughs> which uh, is not only then uh, here at Melbourne Fringe, but you won a Tour Ready Award to actually bring the show to Melbourne. Yes, absolutely. So we, we picked up a few awards at, uh, at the New Zealand Fringe, uh, Outstanding Solo Performance, uh, Melbourne Touring, San Diego Touring, and got nominated for Best in Fringe. So I was pretty happy with that. So uh, have yeah. you been to San Diego? Yet? No, that's coming up. That's that's next year. So okay. that'll, be, that'll be the plans for next so year. This is, <laughs> so this is you kind of dipping your toe into the international waters by coming across the ditch to Melbourne. Yeah, this is our first ever show um, being taken uh, overseas. So we're super, super excited. And everyone's been so hospitable. Uh, the French Festival, everyone's been amazing at the at the venues and stuff. So, yeah, it's been cool to be over here. Great. Now, tell us a little bit about what the dance slash physical theatre scene is like over in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Yeah, totally. I, I think um, a lot of what uh, people create is um, there's a lot of work uh, that is rooted in traditional like uh, Maori performance and things like that. Uh, I'm not Maori myself, so I don't have uh, that particular background. Um, but a lot of the physical theatre there um, is, is con- kind of constructed from those cultural origins. Um, ours as well, obviously there's influences from, um, you know, Lecoq, uh, um, um, all sorts of other clown influences, which is where I kind of uh, fall into. Um, so bringing stuff like that. Uh, yeah, Tom's one of the biggest uh, names in uh, New Zealand, at least, um, for that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Well, I've, certainly I've seen quite a few uh, fringe performances from New Zealand over the years, and particularly uh, – Kind of physical theatre mm. and comedy from Barney Duncan, for example. Oh, excellent! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it certainly, and that kind of hybrid between physical theatre and comedy is a really mm. interesting one because kind of Barney and kind of a, a couple of his collaborators in the past, uh, uh, Trigvi Wakenshaw, for example, have really brought such a fine art to clowning physical comedy where it's like, I don't think there are lines between <laughs> the art forms anymore. No, no, no. Yeah, it's definitely blurred and created, become its own little organism. Um, yeah, I mean, I, like my background is actually mainly in street dance. Uh, so I, I do uh, like battle and street dance and freestyle style uh, and that has influenced uh, kind of the way that um, my physical theater uh, happens uh, so uh, there's a lot of very cheeky energy that I bring to a lot of it uh, which helps with the the clown aspect of that yeah now you've been doing street dance for what 15 years yes yep that's the one since I was a little child um, so yeah <laughs> did the 
that all the way up. And yeah, it's, it's definitely, I've grown with it. Uh, and my dance has grown with me and kind of shifted and changed. And um, yeah, Only Bones definitely feels like a, a kind of culmination of a lot of that. Um, it's bringing... Um, yeah, bits of my street dance and then bits of contemporary and a bit of physical theatre and a bit of clown and pushing it together into a into a little package. <laughs> Talk to us about the evolution from mm. kind of street dance battles and the like through to performing now on stage but in a one metre square. Yeah, it's definitely different. Um, but I think but I think the the ability to create. Uh, uh, in unfamiliar spaces uh, is actually something that comes from street dance, right? You know, um, we're used to dancing just out in, like, a car park. So, or... so having just one light is actually a luxury. It's, it's, yeah, it's a luxury. You know, sometimes we don't even have a light. We've got to use, you know, I don't know, the phone or something. Uh, yeah, so, no, it's really nice. Um, and I think... Um, yeah, the, the meter squared, the restrictions help, really, um, because it means uh, you don't rely on all of the other tech that you might use in other shows. You've you got to be very um, very crafty and very very creative with it, yeah. Which is, for me, one of the, the real joys of any form of independent and fringe work mm. because there's no money. Instead <laughs> yeah. of having grandiose sets or whatever, it's like, okay, smell of an oily rag, let's use our imagination. <laughs> you've got to be thrifty, you've got to be, be ready to yeah, figure out how to, how to make fixes and make changes and, yeah, no, it's great. And particularly for a show like this, mm. uh, infinitely tourable because you don't even have a set. No, no. Well, our set is uh, uh, eight small stickers that create the circle on the ground uh, and that's it. So we like to joke that, you know, we're putting in the set and it's done, um, basically in five seconds flat. Which, for, from a fringe perspective, when the next show wants to bump yeah, in... Very helpful, very yeah. helpful. Yeah. Um, in terms of coming to Melbourne, what are your expectations of, of what Melbourne Fringe will will be like and, and how do you think it will benefit you as a performer? Well, I think, uh, for me, it's all about making connections, all about meeting people, um, the fringe over here is a lot bigger than back home, uh, and and there's a lot more going on, uh, which I really love. I love being a part, and we're really enjoying just uh, even just the, the festival hub where we are. Uh, the trades hall is all done up and beautiful and incredible, and you know they've got all these decorations. And uh, no, it's 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 excellent. And I think um, for me, what what we we really want to do um, is yeah, forge connections with some more artists over here and the festival and. Um, go from there and kind of uh, connect. <laughs> Is there much of a contingent of New Zealand artists at the Fringe this year? Yeah, there's actually quite a few. Um, there's Michael Hockey's over with his solo show, To Be Frank, uh, up in the Trades Hall as well. Um, there's She's Crowning, uh, which is a, a comedy uh, kind of a retelling of uh, Netflix's The Crown um, in a ridiculous uh, uh, fashion. Uh, there was Love, 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 uh, which is uh, finished now, but another solo show. So, yeah, lot, lots of Kiwi artists. So we don't feel too too out of our depth. There's lots of familiar faces That's around. That's good to know. Is there <laughs> a reciprocal uh, touring of Australian there fringe is. artists, for yeah, example? Yeah, actually part, part of um, our tour was um, uh, we, we met the touring artists uh, with the show Pillow Talk. They were down in... Uh, in Wellington doing their show and we met them and had a chat um, and then they they were saying oh well, well <laughs> you should come to Melbourne and then lo and behold got the award and were able to do it so yeah, yeah we're really happy about that <laughs> now 
It's you on stage. Mm. Uh, you've also worked with a sound designer? Yes, absolutely. So we've worked with um, our lovely sound designer, um, Ben Kelly, uh, who's a Wellington-based sound designer. Uh, also behind the scenes, uh, Rebecca DeRue is our lighting designer and operator, our tech whiz. Cause, uh, I love that you have a lighting designer, a light, even though there's sorry, one light. A, a light designer. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> sing, singular. Um, uh, and then Faye Vandermeulen uh, is our lovely, lovely producer who you know pulls all the strings, talks to people, figures out uh, where to be, how to get there, uh, and I'm there to uh, wobble my body around. That sounds fun to me. <laughs> Good team. Yeah. In terms of the pressure on a performer in a solo mm. show, mm. There's, there's no chance to rest. There's no <laughs> no one else to bounce off. It's just you in front of the audience. What's yes. that like? Yeah, I, I, I think... This is, uh, I think, my third solo show, so a lot of practice in d- building my own energy. But I, I always love to um, bounce off a crowd. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, clown um, instincts kick in, and I love to share uh, little reactions with the crowd. And um, you know, eye contact is always fun, especially with you know people in the front row. And uh, feeding off them helps me helps me keep keep it going. And especially with a show as physically demanding as this one, uh, yeah, definitely need to. Need to take my breaths where I can. <laughs> I'm speaking with Daniel Nodder about their show Only Bones, which uh, kicked off last night. Yeah, it kicked off last night. I had opening night. It was awesome. We had a very giggly audience. They loved it. Um, <laughs> had some funny moments. Uh, people asking about our Spotify for our uh, our sound designer, which was a lovely moment. So I told him to figure that out and sort that. But, uh, <laughs> that is a future endeavour, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of again, creating a, a solo dance mm. physical theatre work. You saw the original Only Bones, I believe. Yes, yes. So the original Only Bones, Only Bones uh, 1.0, which was Tom Tom Monkton's uh, Only Bones, um, was actually, yeah, one of my big inspirations uh, as a starting out um, theatre practitioner and dancer. I saw that and said, oh, that's the kind of stuff I want to make. I want to make something um, that is minimalist uh, and hilarious and weird and fun. Um and it wasn't until, yeah, I think two and a half years later that I kind of met him and then he invited me to create this. So it's, it's really, it is a dream come true. It's pretty pretty surreal when I when I get to thinking about it. Um, so, so this is only Bones uh, version, what, 1.10? 1.10. So technically the 11th, we've, we've named it Daniel Nodder so people don't get confused. Uh, sometimes people get a, a bit, a bit uh, <laughs> mixed up. But yeah, so this is the uh, 11th version um, uh, of, of only Bones. There's others happening uh, all around. I think there's uh, 1.9. Um, is heading to Adelaide Fringe uh, next year. So there's there's only bones all over the globe. <laughs> I do love the idea of, again, as you said, that the, the kind of restrictions that begin by necessity in mm. ind- independent work then actually become the strength of the work and inspire this series of, this rolling series of dance and physical theatre performances. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, each person, based on what their background is, is going to bring something new to it. Uh, so there's lots of people who come from a circus background, some from martial arts, some from uh, contortion, and each person has created their own little version of their their take on those restrictions uh, and to create a new show. So I, I can imagine, for example, the that what a... Uh, somebody who practices capoeira would do, for example, exactly. and somebody that comes from a pure clowning background. Like, the, the, the potential and the spread is fascinating. Yeah, very different shows, uh, and, you know, some people use different lights. As their one light, they can pick a different one, and yeah, it's it's fascinating. I I've, I haven't actually been able to see uh, many, but there's been talks of trying to get as many as we can in one festival. Uh, so maybe there'll be some something coming in the future. <laughs>
So an Only Bones festival. An Only Bones festival of all the Only Bones, hopefully. That we'll get all be, the bones in one place. That would be kind of cool. <laughs> uh, if you want to see uh, Only Bones, Daniel Nodder, my guest, uh, it's on at the Melbourne Fringe Hub at Trades Hall in the meeting room at 7.15pm nightly, 6.15pm on Sundays. Runs for 50 minutes. I'm guessing you get at least one day off a week. Yeah, a couple of days off a week, Monday, Tuesday, and then uh, and then back to it. <laughs> so uh, check out melbournefringe.com.au or just rock up to Trades Hall and buy tickets at the door. But I always recommend booking if you can, because if nothing else, it makes the producer and the artist a little bit calmer when they go, ah, <laughs> oh, there's 18 people already booked in as opposed to two. So, <laughs> exactly. Hey, we'd love to see you there. <laughs> so uh, the details again, uh, 7.15 at the... Melbourne Fringe Festival Hub at Trades Hall in the meeting room. Go to melbournefringe.com.au to book to see Only Bones, Daniel Nodder. Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks hey, for coming in. It has. See you later. <laughs> Thanks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by my next guest in the studio. Candy Bowers is one of Australia's most exciting and passionate performers. She's somebody I respect enormously, and it's always a pleasure to have her in the studio. Hey, Candy. Hi, Richard. Uh, welcome. You're here to talk about Sweet Mama, which yes. is a new show at the Drum Theatre in Dandenong. Yes. And I love to be able to talk about the drum because often on the show people go, oh, we really like hearing about such and such, but we live in Werribee or mm-hmm. Wonthaggy. Yeah, Fern Tree Gully. So to have kind of uh, a venue like the drum, which mm. is so supportive of local community, local yeah. artists. And you were originally born in Dandenong. I was you? indeed. So for me... Um, this particular work, it's almost site-specific in some ways. Um, I did it in Campbelltown, which is where I grew up, and now I'm here at the Drum. And I really specifically wanted to do it, particularly for the schools, because um, I do a lot of education stuff, and you've got all the schools coming from the southeast and the west into the city. So this time I really wanted to come out to them and actually do something uh, for my community, you know, like be on the doorstep of my aunts and uncles because this particular work is a personal one and it's um, about one of the most devastating diseases that uh, I think we've gotten very complacent about in my community. And, um, yeah, so making a in, like an intergalactic cabaret with an underlying allegory of type 2 diabetes, you know, very on brand for me. <laughs> Now, you say that it's a very personal show, but so much of your work is deeply personal. Yes. Yeah, this one is, it it turns a corner because I've actually been caring for my mum at the pointy end of type 2 diabetes. So, you know, all of the things that come from that hard turn as um, tissue and organs are corroded, eyesight, shoulders, you know, she lives in an adult diaper now, she's quite disabled. And I myself was shocked at how hard that turn is regarding type 2 diabetes. I was not aware of it, but of course COVID also made me very aware of um, how devastating this particular progressive and chronic disease is. And and I've been talking to friends all week, some who are, who are on metformin and that sort of thing. And 
I just feel like we're not really talking about it in a real way. Um, well, given the, the health warnings on cigarette packets, why aren't there health warnings about diabetes, type 2 diabetes, on soft drink cans? Because Coca-Cola are fighting in the courts for that information to not get across. So there was an, uh, an article last month about that. Like, I think health regulations been fighting Coke particularly, but other junk food spaces as well, to get that education, not to be allowed to advertise its sporting arenas or so much to children because really I mean Coca-Cola is killing more people than heroin like it's it's we're at epidemic level so the government's doing an inquest into type 2 diabetes we're not calling it early onset adult diabetes anymore it's now children and um it's a real I I was watching um painkiller about the oxycotton phenomena and I thought there's going to be one about coke from from all of that um because and, of the marketing and, and not just coke but other soft drinks generally yeah, including sports hardcore, drinks oh, for example that lifestyle kind of, and sports drinks are full of sugar yeah. yeah and and this is the thing um there's this stuff about moderation all that sort of stuff but this is the, the hard part about something like sugar at this level is that it's slow it's progressive and it's chronic so it's not like you know, even type 1 diabetes where someone can can experience, like, you know, um, things can go haywire quickly. This is a slow burn and it's affecting, you know, obviously particularly black and brown, Polynesian, Aboriginal, South Asian communities in a way that even now I think when I go off and do things in the world, I would love my mum to be able to come with me. I'm at that age and she would be at that age where that would be dope, you know, but she's housebound. You know, and and I came back from LA. My sister's also sick, though. Um, it's it's also a burden to the family and stuff. And and I mean that's to the side of it. But what I really wanted to do is make something bonkers and fun, like I do a song as the pancreas, because I really realised that nobody wants to talk about it. this. is really hard, but it's it's so many people are experiencing it, and there's cognitive dissonance going on. All the stuff I read, I'm like, people are not going to be reading this, you know. And also the face of, like, you know, the Quit Sugar movie, which is, I think, a must-see, but it's also from a white male perspective. There's not a lot of black and brown, particularly women, who are most affected by type 2 diabetes talking about it. And the shame is so strong. So I wanted to make something that people could have a giggle but also think about deeply about the future because the byline for the show is do you believe in destiny and lots of people just think oh we're just going to get it it's in the family it's predisposed and all that but actually um one of my favorite things I've seen the show which is a well-known idea is the only the best way to predict the future is to create it so I truly believe that people can um and I've seen it I'm in groups with people who can turn it around and actually go on a nice walk in their 60s and 70s keep contributing, keep living a good life, you know? One of the things that you've done with the creation of this show is to, to use the, the, that classic idea of, I was about to say sugarcoating, that's a terrible <laughs> metaphor, um, but to, to deliver a, a tough idea or yeah. challenging information in a palatable, palatable way through comedy, mm. through song, mm. through your love of, what, 1980s fantasy <laughs> films and video games yes. and to create this Afro-futurist joyous work yes. that is simultaneously a work of education yeah. uh, and, and protest saying, why aren't we talking about this? But yeah. to do it 
in a way that invites people to... You, you're inviting people to take your hand and come yeah. on a journey with you. I think that's really important. And in a lot of the paperwork I read, they talk about dietary intervention, but I'm like, like what? What are you doing? What's an intervention? So in a lot of ways, this is an artistic intervention to make just people think a little bit differently because we've been so like hammered with marketing too. Like it's no longer a choice. Like a friend of mine says, I want to be able to choose what I eat. And I said, but you're not because you're a bit addicted, which means it's not a choice. And the marketing's so strong, you're not getting a balanced view at all. Um, and people hate it. It's like a friend of mine who's a fierce vegan advocate. He goes, oh, people are going to hate. People hate it when you talk about what what's going on with the things they love. But I'm also like looking at it like diabetes industrial complex because plenty of people on the boards of fast food and, you know, um, fried food companies also make like diabetes meds, like metformin. So in a way I'm like, this is what, like people say, why are you making a cabaret about this? And I think, you know, back in the day, First Peoples would always make work about the most immediate things for their community. And this is even more than immediate for me. You know, my mum's, you know, I wash my mum. She's, she's, she's dying in my hands. She's rotting from sugar, glucose moving from her blood into her organs because all metformin does is even out the blood. It doesn't, like, like we don't go holistic, you know. So um, the only real way to take care of yourself is getting really staunch about what you put into your body. But I found the only antidote, because I'm like throwing research at the wall. I'm so upset because I'm watching the people I love the most just sort of disintegrating around me and knowing it could be my future, you know. So I'm like kind of, it's cheesy as it is, it's self-love and Working out, like, I mean, how are you going to ask a black or brown woman to put herself and what she eats at the top of her list, right? That's a psychological thing to do. It's a deep thing to do. It's a spiritual thing to do. And so, like anyone, how do you put the care for yourself at the top? Because that's the only way to shift this. Yeah, and particularly in any culture where being told to put yourself first and to think of yourself uh, first is an act of selfishness. Mm. You should be caring for those around you. You should be caring yeah. for you, putting your family first, all of those tropes. Yeah. It's kind of like an act of radical self-care is actually a ra- an act of radical selfishness because you have to put yourself and your, and, your yeah. long-term health first if you're going to be able to support other people. And I think this is it. Like when we talk about self-determination, it's interesting. One of the heads of South, uh, the Southwest Aboriginal um, Health Program that came along to my show in, in Campbelltown said the way I explained it in this other form, even for her who's third generation type 2 diabetes and works in the field, she had light bulb moments. So I think theatre is actually super powerful and I'm actually not doing anything that crazy. I'm doing what we originally made theatre for, which is for people to see a different perspective in order to, um, you know, hopefully inspire transformation. Um, this one's particularly personal, though, because it's all about you, you know. Um, but, yeah, heaps of fun. I think, um, yeah, singing as the as the pancreas is probably the kookiest and funniest <laughs> thing I've ever done in my life. 
But it, she's the star of the show in a lot of ways. A lot of people walk away going, that was the best. So well, I've seen you do some pretty kooky and fun <laughs> stuff in the past before, Candy. But yeah. uh, this sounds great. Now, talk to us um, about the other creative team mm. that you're working with on Sweet Mama, which Look. I just before, just to jump in, which people can see on f- Saturday the 21st of October, 1.30pm at the Drum Theatre in yes. Dandenong. That's the general performance and then there are two schools performances yeah, the, the day, day before. before. I'm very excited. All of you nine from Hampton Park are coming and they're just my demographic all the way. So that's for the schools, yeah, but come on Saturday. And I was like, make a day of it if Dandy's not somewhere you've been much or, of course, the people who know are from there. It's little India out there. You've got a market, you've got fresh food coming out the wazoo, every type of food. So there's lots to do. Um, I got a really nice fade the other day. I'm like, if you're going to get a proper fade, you go out there, you know. I'm talking to you lesbians. I see you. Um, So um, anyway... yeah. What was the question I got into my Your creative life? team. My team, my team. My team are awesome. Um, Christian Biko is my um, musical collaborator, composer, um, co-MD, and I think he's just a really hidden gem in the Australian scene. A lot of people know him from, from DJing and he's done all that world. Like I, I spoke to Miss Riz the other day and she was like, I remember DJing with Christian. So we've made Afrofuturistic music for the show. So in every context, and I'm telling you what, South Africans, you better come out because you will see yourself back at you. Musically, I think it's one of the, the most incredible um, soundtracks I've made to date with with Christian this one. And then we're working with the amazing Zambian-born Ntumbi Moyo on costume. So people will know Tumbi from um, doing a lot of Sampa the Great's costume. And um, she's also done Adele and Rihanna. And she just happened to be in Australia working on uh, Swift Street, a new, a new program that I also worked on um, with an, with an African-created TIG. So we all lined it up. I, I spoke to Indira and I do, and she's like, how did you get a Dell's costume designer? I was like, she's almost family. She had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks bloody amazing. And I've it will say. sound amazing as and well. And it sounds incredible. Um, and it's interesting because I didn't even know I was going to be doing this as a solo when I got the Creators Fund. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. And it's quite interesting for me because I haven't – I've done two solo works in my career, which I think you've seen – and this one is really the sum of all of that learning and it's quite interesting sort of 20 years later doing a solo work again um, and, and really being able to feel growth and knowledge and all of that in place, which artists, is pretty, it can be tough for us to feel that. So this is wonderful. Candy Bowers is performing Sweet Mama at the Drum Theatre on the corner of Lonsdale and Walker Streets, Dandenong, on Saturday the 21st of October, 1.30pm for general audiences, uh, the day before, Friday the 20th for schools at 10.30am and 1.30pm. Uh, go to the Drum Theatre website, drum.greaterdandenong.vic.gov.au forward slash drum forward slash events or just Google Sweet Mama Drum Theatre and you will find tickets and you should book and you should go. Candy, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. (laughs) Thanks, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 